you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now on Fast, a hot start to a new week on Wall Street. Microsoft, the biggest driver for the Dow, surging another 3-plus percent, continuing its surge since announcing the new Bing with ChatGPT will break down the AI boom and the rest of the day's market action. Plus, Ford announcing a $3.5 billion EV battery boost. The interesting wrinkle here, they're partnering with a Chinese company to build a new factory here in the U.S., so how will our tensions with Beijing impact this move? And later, work from home taking a massive toll on New York City's bottom line. From real estate to restaurants, the billions being lost from workers not coming to the Big Apple. And is there a short there? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight from our new temporary home. Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. This is just as the studio upstairs gets constructed, this will be your new home. But fun, nice. fun digs here. We start off with a $100 billion question. That's about how much market cap has flown out of Alphabet and into Microsoft over just the past week when the AI chatbot wars kicked into high gear. Microsoft up another 3% today, posting its highest close since late August. Alphabet basically flat, but it's down 12% from its early February highs. So what does this transfer of value tell us about the AI race and the futures for Google? And Microsoft, it's interesting how long this has persisted, Karen. We were chatting in the green room. I thought this was like a couple-day phenomenon, and here we are. Well, yeah, I mean, the interesting part was the last week, that sort of $110 billion, almost dollar-for-dollar dollar value from Microsoft, or from Google, rather, to Microsoft, which is interesting. But also interesting is the $338 billion, is it, that Microsoft has um, increased? Gained just from the announcement of the $1 billion into chat, GPT, right? And, and I mean, that's extraordinary. So I feel like this is pretty much overdone. I am a Google holder, right, shareholder. That's my a big position. So I, I feel like, obviously, I have somewhat of a bias there. But I think that this is sort of... Um, front-running what may or may not be a huge shift of market share. You know, it's interesting. When, when Google gapped down 6% after their Paris event, um, you know, that was an astoundingly large move on yes. one thing that, you know, and, and a lot of it was juxtaposed to kind of Microsoft's events the prior day that seemed to go really well. This uh, chat GPT has, you know, it really has captured the imagination of not just the tech world, but beyond it. And so when you think about those two events, you'd say to yourself, okay, well, one has a lead and the other doesn't. And to your point, Karen, you know, Microsoft now has committed so much capital to this and is also getting rebates for their cloud services, that sort of thing, we're not going to see any material shift in, in market share as it relates to search, I don't think, based on these kind of products that we've seen um, deployed over the last couple weeks on these things. But I guess what I would say is, and I talked about it on Thursday, I mean, I put on a pairs trade where I was short Microsoft and long Google, and that was working out really well on Friday. But then when you see, to your point, you use the term surge, Melissa, that stock gapped up today, Microsoft, yeah. 1.5%. At one point, it was up 4% in market cap terms. That is just massive. So 
There are huge bets that are being made about the future, but I just don't believe right now that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. And that's why I put that trade on. But right now, Microsoft really feels like it's kind of off to the races. And Google acts very poorly still. But again, this is not like a sort of here and now effect. I don't think that we're going to see in the earnings over the next you know, couple quarters. Sure. Well, just one thing to add, though. I mean, Google really shot themselves in the foot with that sort of, you know, not fully baked, um, you know, rollout. Yeah. You know, and, and, and there's the perception that Google is so far behind in the AI race, and that is not the case. They have been, I mean, AI is incorporated in all of their products, and so we have this big term AI, but it's such a, you know, it's such a pervasive term, pervasive um, technology already there, but it seems like, you know, Alphabet has just really sort of done a terrible job of spinning the story. They're not really spinning it, then they shouldn't spin it. Wait, right. have some good spin when you have it, but you know, don't go off sort of half cocked. They seem to have lost, they lost the narrative just a touch, um, you know, when those memos started to go, go out and, and it was reported that they were calling back the founders guy. But I mean, at this point, I mean, the markets are forward looking, right? And so if we look into the future, do we see that Microsoft is putting a, a better foot forward in terms of its stake in AI and how it is thinking about AI versus how Alphabet appears to be thinking about AI in terms of how it has put its foot forward and it was very underwhelming for investors. Yeah, I, th- I mean, your point about them see- seemingly panicking by bringing back the founders, I think the market sort of seized upon that and again, sold first, asked questions later. I mean, some of the Google problems are clearly... Um, Google and the businesses that are in specific. And if the only arena that these two companies were vying for business in were AI, I could understand this move, but it's not. Uh, You know, Microsoft is now a $2 trillion company, and one has to wonder how meaningful this will be maybe 10 years from now. Yes, over the next couple of years, I'm not so sure. So it comes down to, I think, what are you willing to pay? And as Dan put on that pairs trade last week, just in terms of the math, at current levels, Microsoft is trading close to 25 times next year's numbers, assuming that they make that. And if you go back and listen to the conference call, there's still some question as to whether or not they're going to be able to get there. And I've said it a hundred times. I think Microsoft is one of the five, if not three most important companies in the world. But does it deserve this kind of valuation? On the flip side, now Google at either side of 16 times next year's numbers, at a certain point, valuations are going to matter. And I think Dan may have been a couple days early last week, but I think he's looking at it the correct way. Right here, right now, Grasso, Alphabet or Microsoft? You know, I knew you were coming with a, uh, a would you rather here. So right here, right now, I would, I would go with Alphabet only because the damage, uh, you know, Karen said it's a little bit long in the tooth or that's, the, I'm paraphrasing, a little overdone. It hit its 50-day moving average. Trade a little bit below, 94.13 or thereabouts for, for its 50-day uh, its day. I would like to play it from the standpoint of the stock that got hit the hardest off of this news. Both of them broke out to the upside from declining uh, trend lines. Both of them uh, did not have the same scenario after the fact. Google obviously broke down. Microsoft continued to break out. But this is about search. AI is about search. So Google's not getting their lunch stolen from them right now, but their lunch is search and if ai is going to have the keys to that vehicle going forward that's why it's such a big deal and that's why google collapsed on such a bad bad outing uh, when they showed off what they did have which showed what they didn't have 
Yeah, and just to be really clear, I mean, right now, I think what investors are getting to see is how it applies to search. But if you look upon across both of these companies and their productivity tools. I mean, this is going to be a massive differentiator. And, and we know that, you know, Microsoft is pushed to make, you know, Office and those yeah. other tools into the cloud. That's where Google's have always been, right? And you already see it in a lot of their products. So um, to me, I, listen, I think that this is going to be a multi-horse race. I just don't think that one of them are going to run away with it in 2023. And when you think about the way that Alphabet has actually been investing in this space in their own tools for probably a decade, right now. I know that the Sundar Pichai, when he took over, he said this is going to be an AI first company, and they've been doing this in the background. Does it look a little panicky as they're just throwing $250 million at pre-revenue companies and trying to do this? Maybe, but ultimately, in the markets, this stuff works itself out. And to Guy's point, this is a $2 trillion company market cap versus a $1.2 trillion company. They both have over $200 billion in revenues with north of 60% gross margins. It really is the fear of margin degradation in the search business that Google dominates right now. But I honestly think this is going to work itself out. I just want to correct something I said. I said $1 billion in ChatGPT was one originally and then 10. Nevertheless, $338 million on the 10 or 11, however. Good return. It's, it's so like a far. SPAC return. Right. <laughs> For more on all this, let's bring in Brett Winton. He's the chief futurist at ARK Invest and has been tracking the AI race. Um, Brett, great to have you with us. How should we think about this? Because right now we're thinking about you know, the revenue impact, but in terms of long-term advantage, Google versus Microsoft, who who has it? I think Google is fundamentally impaired by this transition to AI. Um, it's a classic innovator's dilemma story where um, they claim they have technology, they could do it if they wanted to, but um, the transition to AI really imperils both the cost structure of search uh, and their ability to generate revenue off search. Their entire business model is built around um, taking people and delivering them to the next site. And and these AI systems actually deliver answers to the end users. And so uh, search as a way station to the rest of the internet, it's, it's not going to persist as a typical user behavior over the course of this business cycle. Is this assessment made based almost solely on what Google unveiled last week? Or, or was this your thinking prior to and going into even that botched launch? Oh, yeah, it's independent of that botched launch. I think people inside Google will say, hey, we have like just as good AI as OpenAI, which is probably true, but their entire business structure revolves around this idea that people go to a site to go to another site to get to their answer. We think that text prompt AI based tools are going to live inside of software. You're no longer going to go outside of Excel to Google search to look for a piece of data. That piece of data is going to be provided to you inside Excel. And so it'll cut Google search out of that entire user flow and extend that to any economic activity that a, that an employee engages in. Uh, and so like the stages of grief for, for kind of Google uh, shareholders is one uh, first stage, hey, this isn't going to matter. Second stage is, hey, actually, this will make search more costly to perform. Then the third stage is, hey, actually, this is going to impact the number of click-throughs we get from search because it's providing answers. But the fourth stage is, hey, actually, people aren't going to go to search at all. Traffic's going to fall off because the way in which we engage with the uh, material of information on the Internet is going to be changed by this. So we are making the point that there is almost a dollar for dollar for dollar transfer of market cap from Alphabet to Microsoft in just the past one week. 
Um, walk us through, if you will, what Microsoft has that you think is innovative or maybe what they have isn't. And it just shows that Google's model is fragile and is vulnerable. Yeah, I think Google's model is fragile and it doesn't necessarily accrue to Microsoft's benefit. I, I don't think a head-to-head competition between search engines is is actually leading us to the winning strategy. Instead, you can imagine that maybe Google protects search by spending a lot more money on AI inferencing uh, and, and you know, potentially driving business towards NVIDIA as Microsoft tries to compete with them. Uh, it, it could be that uh, Microsoft's strategy uh, in, in launching Bing powered by AI is really just a way to collect data to uh, to monetize on the back end through their Office franchise and, and the way in which uh, AI is going to build into the Office franchise. So I, I I don't know that Microsoft is an actual winner here. It's much more clear that there will be a lot of money spent on AI investment, that the picks and shovels that provide for um, this kind of capability into software will be really well positioned. I think the analogy to the early, early internet is a good one, where early internet, actually, uh, the, the, the winner was not the Amazons and, and, and the consumer-facing internet companies that we think of today, it was Cisco, which was providing all of the infrastructure that allowed people to get connected. Well, here, who's providing the infrastructure that allow these AI models to be changed? That's the, the chip companies, that is uh, companies in the private space like Mosaic ML, who are, who are enabling enterprises to build these AI models um, for, for themselves. Uh, and so it's really interesting, and I think Google's very vulnerable. Brad, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Um, I agree with you on the picks and shovels concept, but getting back to the search concept, so it sounds like you must think then that um, even, even if Google retains share, or regardless of who gets share, that ultimately it will just be a less profitable business to be in search. What do you think is going to happen to those margins, if I'm right about what I think your theory is? Yeah, I, I think the cost to, to provide a search could um, massively compress margins. If, we think that it's roughly a, a penny and a half of revenue per Google search, and it might cost you a penny to run the AI model if you're running a, a large language model inference against that Google search. Well, that actually uh, stacked on top of the other infrastructure of, of, of providing that, that search, that might eat all of the operating profit of a search if, if they're forced to do that. And so just from Google's perspective, uh, going from a, a highly profitable business to a, a business that's marginally profitable is a big transformation for, for that company. And th that's not even taking into account the potential revenue impact, the potential impact on traffic to search as a pattern for how people operate in the internet. So I, I think there's a lot of threat to that business model from here. When you think about, uh, for Microsoft, the percentage of revenue that comes from search, how committed do you think that they will be to this business that is going to be very costly for them to scale it from 30 million users now in their chat GPT that's enabled with Bing versus like really going head to head with Google? And th that's where this may kind of run out of steam a little bit. Well, I think Microsoft as an enterprise-facing company actually has an advantage position here. We think that AI is going to monetize through the enterprise first, and Microsoft could underwrite the search business as basically a loss leader in order to collect the data it needs to improve its AI capability in if its office suite software. I, as someone who uses Excel all the time, I'm looking forward to having an AI-powered Excel. And that AI-powered Excel is going to be better, and I'm going to pay more for it um, because of the data that Microsoft gets off of whatever happens with Bing. I don't, I don't think they're going to try to run 
big profitably because they have such a profitable um, office productivity franchise that, that will be super powered by AI. Brett, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to get your perspective on this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brett Winton of ARK Invest. Um, a guy, and it's interesting the way he, he poses it, that we're thinking strictly about chat GPT enabled Bing, but there's all other ways that AI will help Microsoft's business on the paying end when you're a paying customer for some of its, its uh, productivity software. Tim would call that the flywheel effect. It, it makes a lot of sense without question, right? I mean, I understand the accretiveness, the accretive nature it could have for Microsoft, but I also think we're probably a few years away from that at least. And in the meantime, this stock has gotten extraordinarily expensive in a very short period of time. You know, if we were to task to talk about Microsoft three to five years from now, it might be a different conversation. I'll tell you, over the next couple of weeks, though, I think Microsoft has run too much too fast. And in that last quarter and the, and the subsequent conference calls, all I needed to hear. With that said, I mean, he's talking about, if I listen to him correctly, a bit of an existential risk to Google if they don't get their act together. And that might be the case as well. But as Karen made the point earlier, I think Gene Munster as well last week, AI is something that Google's been working on for at least a decade. So it's not like they're completely behind the eight ball. So listen, the market speaks. You got to listen. But I think the market is a little ahead of itself right now. Coming up, we've got an earnings alert on Palantir. Shares are surging after reporting a beat on the top and bottom lines. We'll bring you the details in just a few. But next, Ford's EV ambitions are charging up. The automaker announcing a new battery plant, but it's who they're partnering with that is turning some heads. We've got the details in Fast Money Returns. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Forward shares popping nearly 3% today after the automaker revealed its latest EV investment. It plans to open a battery plant in Michigan with Chinese supplier CATL despite the rising U.S.-China tensions. CNBC's Phil Lebeau spoke with CEO Jim Farley earlier today about this partnership. Phil. Melissa, the way this is structured, Ford believes it allows them to gain the benefits of the IRA EV tax credits that will be put in place uh, and are already in place once this plant opens in 2026. This is the way the deal will be structured. 
Ford will own and operate this plant. It will not be a joint venture with CATL. It will, however, license the CATL technology. So there's how CATL will benefit from this. Opens in 2026, 2,500 jobs scheduled to be created in South Central Michigan. Given the tensions between the U.S. and China, some have questioned whether or not Ford should go through with this deal. But when we talk with Jim Farley, he says that's not an issue. There's always risk in business, but we feel really comfortable. You know, CATL is, is the largest battery manufacturer in the world, and uh, they have a lot of experience with uh, U.S. companies, companies around the world. So uh, they're in all of our daily consumer products. So I don't expect, I don't expect any surprises based, based on their reputation, scale, and experience. Remember, Ford is number two in EVs, but a very distant number two compared to the market leader, Tesla. The significance of this deal is that this plant will manufacture LFP EV batteries. What does that mean? It's lithium iron phosphate. It costs less to produce. It has slightly lower range, but it will allow Ford to both increase its margins and potentially lower the cost on the vehicles uh, because these batteries will not cost as much as the current uh, makeup of the EV batteries that they build. One last thing. Bill Ford, chairman of the Ford Motor Company, was at the announcement today in Romulus, Michigan, where they talked about this plant. And he was asked, look, is Jim Farley still your man? Is he still the guy to uh, turn around this company or fix this company after what happened in the fourth quarter? He said, yeah, I think he's doing a fantastic job and that he is focused, Jim Farley is focused, on eliminating the inefficiencies that came out uh, and were behind the company falling short of its profit, uh, profit targets for all of uh, 2022. So that's the story with Ford, Melissa. And as you see, the, sh the shares getting a little bit of a pop today. Roughly, Phil, what is the differential in cost? I mean, will, will it cost that much less in terms of what, what they um, will make the battery for and what they give up on range? L yeah, well, LFP batteries are about 15% less to produce than NCM, the other technology that the current makeup of the, the EV batteries that Ford uses right now. Overall, LFP batteries have a range that's probably about 15% less than the current makeup of uh, or NCM batteries. But let, let's talk about this, Melissa. A lot of people sit there and they say, well, I want all 300 miles of range, if that's what a particular vehicle's range is. The reality is not everybody uses all of that. Remember, 80% of Americans drive less than 40 miles a day. So while you do want range, uh, LFP is not going to give you so much less that you'd have to be going, wait a second, I'm making a huge sacrifice here. All right. Phil, thanks. Phil Lebeau. Steve Grasso, what do you make of this announcement? Yeah, I think obviously with recent events, uh, Congress, it's, it's going to be bipartisan. bipartisan. They're going to be laser focused on this. Not that the deal won't go through, but I think it's going to be met with a lot of headwinds. GM on the stock front, GM has outperformed Ford. The stocks look similar, but, but GM has definitely broken out recently uh, out of their declining trend line. This is going to go a little bit of a, a way to helping Ford break out of their declining trend line, but the chart looks better to me on GM. On a, on a year basis, the stock has outperformed Ford. I think it's still going to outperform Ford. I like their size and scale when it comes to their EV partnerships in this country and what they're doing. But obviously that chart that Phil showed, Tesla's still king of the hill. There's still two other companies that are chasing them. But in that chase, I like GM better than Ford. There is a reason why um, Bill Ford was asked whether or not uh, Chris Farley was your man because of the execution issue 
um, mm -hmm. from the latest quarter that they posted. Yeah, I think that, I mean, they're trying to turn around like an aircraft carrier, right? And so to me, to, it's such a gigantic endeavor to, to miss like they did. All right, that's, that's not great for sure. But it's such a big job that I think that they need a lot more time. So, you know, I don't think they're really going to get going until 2024 to have enough products in the market. The same for GM. I actually think Mary Barra needs to perform by the end of 2024 as well. She has staked her her tenure there on the transition to EV. They keep pushing it out. They need to be further along. But I'm staying along GM. You know, it's interesting. When you think about Tesla, and again, I, I've given this to them. I, I think that their charging network, I think their access to batteries, their ability to build them, right, all that stuff, I think that is a huge differentiator to all the competition. But I think watching the Super Bowl last night, and again, this is anecdotal, you see that the, the, the competition is coming. When you hear a headline like this, the competition for battery, battery manufacturers is coming. There's a lot of criticism about uh, full self-driving. I think that is obviously, uh, I think, one of the pillars of the bear case, that it's not the thing that a lot of people think who are buying Tesla are there for. So to me, I just think it's kind of interesting when you put all of this stuff together. I mean, listen, I still have a short position in Tesla. It's had that huge run um, off the bottom. I did think that when it was down 4% today after being down 5% on Friday, I thought the fever might have broken. It closed pretty decently again. And this goes back to, I think, interest rates. And it goes back to where we think the economy is going and where we think if there's going to be a recession, where we think the relations with China are going. I think there's a lot of things that are encapsulated in Tesla's value right here that others, GM and Ford and some of these other automakers, are just not dealing with again. So to me, I just do think it's all this stuff. It's like a big mosaic here. And I'm not sure that Tesla's out of the woods yet. There's a lot more Fast Monday to come. Here's what's coming up next. Palantir shares on the move as the secretive software company's results cross the wires. The details from the quarter next. Plus, Fed or foe. Why our next guest warns investors, the Fed is not your friend. His call ahead of tomorrow's inflation data. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Palantir. Shares surging after reporting a beat on the top and the bottom lines in Q4, posting a quarterly profit for the first time in its history. Frank Holland's got the latest from the earnings call. Frank. Yeah, just a short time on the call. CEO Alex Karp and other executives talking about the growth of their commercial business and also the growing interest in artificial intelligence, along with the growth of that U.S. commercial revenue and customers for Palantir. That appears to be what's moving this stock higher. I spoke with CEO Alex Karp earlier. He said Palantir uses AI in its work with the U.S. military, but there are many other applications. U.S. commercial-based customers increasing by 79% this quarter. U.S. customer revenue growth also up double digits. Karp told me in part, we built AI to train the algorithm in the context of an enterprise with technology that no one has but everyone will need. He added Palantir has received some acquisition interest. Palantir, as you mentioned, turning its first ever quarterly profit, also posting a strong beat on margin. 
Palantir said it expects to be profitable for this entire fiscal year. However, the revenue guidance for the current quarter and the full year actually below estimates, Melissa. Back over All right. Thank you very much, Frank Holland. Uh, Guy, what do you make of this? The P and my hope trade, as you know, and part of my thesis was they'll start to get away from military contracts, get into more MSBs, commercial space, and that product mix would help them get a valuation. That didn't happen. I think that coupled with the fact that they were SPAC, when everybody hated SPACs, I think that's one of the main reasons the stock got clobbered. I think what's happened here is good quarter. The guide for first and second quarter wasn't particularly great, but I think what people are saying, wait a second, they just put a bit of a for sale sign on the back, of, you know, on their shingle, and they're open for business. So, you know, Karen mentioned this in our call, and I caught it when they were talking about it. This this could become an M&A play, and you know, you're talking about a company where data is the new oil. Tim talks about that all the time in an environment where what they're working on is seemingly uh, front and center in everybody's lexicon, I think Palantir, for the first time in a long time, is actually tradable and being, and you can be long this name for the next couple of weeks for sure. What kind of company guy do you think would buy Palantir? A defense company? Well, that's interesting, right? I mean, it, def- it would make perfect sense for a defense company without question. I mean, you'd lock, you bring it up, although I don't know what the SEC or some of those agencies would think about it, but this would make perfect sense for a defense company without question, given the data they have and given their access to so many of these military, military uh, and government contracts they have. Well, let's be clear. I mean, this, this still trades at a really fat multiple of sales about seven times, and, and the profitability they speak of is not uh, gap. You know what I mean? So it's adjusted. So this company's been around a long time. They've never been profitable on a gap basis and trades at a fat multiple. And you look at those revenue um, expectations for growth, about 20% revenue grower. You know what I mean? So that's, I, I think it becomes a hard takeover candidate for a whole host of different uh, companies that, that don't have the sort of currency that could absorb that sort of valuation. Yeah. What did you think of it when you um, heard that they received acquisition interest? It's odd. Why would they say that? Yeah. Right. Why say it uh, if you if you don't want to be acquired? Why say it and invite any interest? Right. Or maybe uh, they're going to miss in the next quarter. And let's sort of don't look there. Let's look over here. We're potential M&A target. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Coming up, all eyes on tomorrow's CPI print. Investors bracing for the latest read on inflation. But our next guest has a stark warning ahead of the report by Michael Schumacher of Wells Fargo says the Fed is not your friend. He joins us next to lay out his take. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check in the markets today. Stocks rallying ahead of tomorrow's CPI report with the Dow jumping 377 points. The S&P climbing more than a percent and the Nasdaq leading the gains up nearly a percent and a half and snapping a three-day losing streak. Meantime, the yield on the two-year hitting its highest level since November. The spread with the 10-year widening back to more than 80 basis points. What did you make of this all, Dan? Warning bells are screaming in silence. So you have rates going up, okay? So you have, you know, so you have rates, you have crude going up, you have the dollar going up, and you have the stocks going up, and you also have inflation readings going up. I mean, like, literally, this market, you know, is like whistling, in my opinion, past the graveyard here, because if we have a hot print tomorrow, we're literally down 2% in a straight line, and then I think the rally, that's this like is not, a stock. I don't know. Well, I no, mean, uh, we that's had the first print. print. We had that's the first print. In, uh, you know, on the labor numbers, 
a gigantic payroll print, and yet the more I agree with you. I think it's uh, the market isn't responding the way I would expect it to. But it seems like they're saying, "All right, no recession." And so the Fed, you know, they've done most of their job. There won't be a recession, and that's good for oh. stocks. That's to me the way the market's interpreting right. it. Or the numbers cooler, and like, okay, good. Now but the Fed I just, can ease. My only point is, at the lows in October and at the lows in December, the consensus was very clearly that we are going to have a recession, right? And that, and and now it, that's just shifted. Okay, so we're not. Having having a recession anymore. I don't know if you got that memo, okay? So we're not having a recession and you know and, and that's the thing that makes me nervous right here about where we are with the S&P. And I think we could be back at 3,800 very quickly. All right. Well, Wells Fargo is warning investors the Fed is not your friend ahead of tomorrow's data. Michael Schumacher is the firm's head of macro strategy. Michael, in, in what way? Higher for longer? Higher for longer. That's right, Melissa. So you think about the history over the last 15 years, whenever there's weakness, the Fed rides to the rescue. Not this time. Fed cares about inflation, and that's just about it. So the idea of lots of easing, forget it. So tomorrow, what should we be looking for? I mean, Karen walked through a scenario in which there is upside to stocks in both scenarios. I mean, the market has it in its brain that there's going to be no recession, or there's going to be a soft landing, and that you know what? That's good enough for equities at this point. It seems odd, though, right? Because if there truly is no recession, and I'm a skeptic, but if that's the case, why is the bond market pricing so much easing for next year in particular? There probably should be less easing priced if this no recession idea comes to pass. And in that case, higher yields, that doesn't sound good to stocks, to me at least, anyway. Could it pop be possible, though, Mike, that, Michael, that, um, you know, the Fed, when you take a look at the Fed futures curve, that it's pricing and easing, but maybe that's a reflection of inflation just coming down a lot? Sure, inflation can come off a fair bit, but we still don't know exactly what the destination is. Makes a big difference to the Fed if that's three, three and a quarter, 275. At this point, that's up in the air. We can't tell. Right now, it's running about 4% plus on core. That's too hot for the Fed. We can get a huge number tomorrow. That's a bad result. It's all about legacy, too. You know, Arthur Burns was probably a brilliant economist, a great individual. He's become the punchline to a lot of inflation jokes. And I don't think Jerome Powell wants to be this generation's Arthur Burns. So I think part of it is about his legacy. And he doesn't want to be the guy that makes some of the same mistakes we made, you know, 40 or 50, almost 50 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. You think about Powell when he walks down that hall at the Fed, he says, Burns, I can't be that guy. I don't want to be number two. I don't want to be number three. I want to make sure there's a big gap between my legacy and that of Burns. And that gives Powell the incentive to really try to squelch inflation, keep policy rates high for quite a while longer than the market anticipates. So I think that's the danger right now, both for bonds and for stocks, frankly. So, Michael, the, the Fed is known for taking too long to act. And as you just said, acting for too long. Is there a chance with this very political uh, year that we're probably well, we are moving into that we're always into with employment that uh, Chair Powell doesn't want to keep his foot on the gas as long as you think he would. And, and the, it, we don't need a lot of cuts. We just need uh, a leveling off of the hikes. Any shot of that? Yeah, there's a chance. And I think the big risk there for Chair Powell is that he loses control of the committee. So a number of folks in the committee lean fairly dovish. If the economy does look a bit weaker, if the jobs picture does darken a fair bit, they may talk to Jay Powell and say, look, we can't go along with additional rate hikes. We probably need a cut or two fairly soon. He might lose that argument. I think that's the biggest risk for him with respect to his legacy. 
Michael, it's Karen. So let me ask you, the market seems to want to interpret everything as a positive, but is there anything that they can say that you would actually also think was a positive? The big positive for us right now, frankly, is going to be in the data. It's not so much what the Fed says, it's what the market delivers data-wise. So if the economy actually does seem to be cooling a little bit, if CPI prints somewhat low tomorrow, we've got a call for 0.3 on core. Sarah House has done a great job there. If that materializes, that's the best sort of news that the economy and the markets can have. So it's less about the Fed talk, much more about the data at this point. Michael, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Michael Schumacher of Wells Fargo. I think there was an interesting article in the Journal this morning talking about China and what um, don't hold your breath waiting for them to reflate the global economy. And I thought one of the interesting points there was that this is going to be a domestic consumption story over the next year or so. And this could be as our economy um, is slowing. When you think about the effects of that, if they have demand for the sorts of inflationary inputs like uh, energy and, you know, industrial commodities, that could be inflationary over here. We have also unemployment at 53-year lows. That wage inflation, that has been really sticky. Now, we're starting to see some layoffs, but it hasn't made its way through our economy, really. So this could be like the, the, the perfect storm of stagflation. And I'm not, it's not fear-mongering or anything. This is just kind of picking it out, partially because the consensus, as I just said, has shifted so dramatically, so quickly, and the markets don't really seem to care about the data. And, you know, Michael just made a lot of good points. Like, if we start to see weakening data, and that might give the Fed a little more room to say, we're not going to be here for as high as, uh, as long as you might think. But the market's not not pricing that in right now. And that's the thing that concerns me. Guy, I thought it was interesting, the question about legacy, the notion that he's thinking about his legacy. He doesn't want to be in, as, to quote David Zervos over at Jeffrey, he says he doesn't want to be in the, in the hell where Arthur Burns resides. He wants to be in the heaven where Paul Volcker resides when it comes to you yeah. know, Fed luminaries and et cetera. But there's a backstop, isn't there, though? I mean, if you're thinking that he's, he's thinking about his legacy, he also doesn't want to be the guy to tip the economy into such a deep recession or tip the markets into a deep bear market, right? It goes both ways. Yeah, I mean, no, listen, without question, I'm sure, and you know, you'll make fun of my age, but I guarantee there were a lot of people hating on Paul Volcker at the time, but history has treated him extraordinarily well. And if we had to endure some short-term pain on the way to being basically trying to be at least responsible once again, and be it so as it may, history has treated him extraordinarily kindly. And I think I can't speak for Jerome Powell clearly, but I think you'd much rather endure the short-term pain, the person that, you know, for a brief period of time tipped us into a slowdown than be the person that had us in this quagmire of inflation because he didn't have the um, wherewithal to fight the good fight. And again, you know, Arthur Burns, who I'd never met, obviously, I'm sure he's a lovely guy. The only reason people remember him is because he failed in the 1970s combating inflation. Coming up, Bear BNB. Options traders aren't staying the night in shares of the vacation rental company. How they're trading the name ahead of earnings tomorrow. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here's CNBC contributor Lo Tony. When I think about Black History Month, the name that really comes to mind for me is Reginald Lewis. He was so inspirational in my career and getting me excited to go out and conquer the world of finance. And the work that we're doing here at Flexo Capital, I hope will also empower others, or at least inspire others, to go create generational wealth.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Big problems for big cities. Bernardo Realty, Boston Properties, JBG Smith Properties seeing massive losses over the last year as the return to office trend hasn't quite materialized. A new report shows remote work is costing Manhattan more than $12 billion a year. Are these post-pandemic problems here to stay? Let's bring in Alexander Goldfarb, a REIT analyst at Piper Sandler. Um, Alexander, great to have you with us. You know, Mondays and Fridays, there's no traffic here. I can I can speak personally. It takes me 15 minutes to get to the studio and 15 minutes to get back. Tuesdays to Thursdays is a different story. This is a trend that has lasted much longer than we all thought. How is this actually impacting, though, you know, leasing, et cetera? Well, first of all, uh, thank you, Melissa, for having me on. You know, here at Piper Sandler, on the REIT side, we've been early to be talking about the theme that you're bringing up, which is I don't think early on in the pandemic people really thought that for every day people work at home, that's a 20% hit to Midtown GDP. No different if you go to San Francisco, Boston, LA, wherever you are, it's a 20% hit. Uh, it's not just the uh, transit systems, it's the bodegas, it's the coffee carts on the corner, it's the restaurants, the bars, it's everything. And it's a real issue. So what's interesting is when you look at office utilization, it's back to around 60% in New York, you know, it's lower, it's like 30, 35% out West, a bit better in Boston. But on the other side, you have the federal government that is still, most of the federal employees are working from home in DC. So it's a mixed picture all around. Ironically, New York is sort of leading, but either way, unfortunately, because of onerous uh, COVID lockdown policies that were extended in the big cities, plus quality of life issues, a lot of people discovered that, you know what? Working from home, coming into the city only a few days a week is a much better way to live. And I think a lot of companies realize that it's a uh, easy perk to give to people. And especially for the employees that know who are working hard, it's something that they can tolerate. So they try to have that Tuesday to Thursday shift. And you're right, Monday and Friday become sort of, you know, definitely a lot lighter. Certainly Friday for sure has become a lot lighter on the uh, commuting to work side. Is this all reflected in these REITs, though, that specialize and have heavy you know, presence in the big cities? It is in the sense that all the management teams have been very upfront. You know, we just got over a week of earnings uh, from the different companies, whether it was SL Green, Boston Properties, some of the West Coast names like Hudson Pacific or Douglas Emmett. Bornado just reported tonight. I haven't had a chance to go through it. But all these companies are talking about, on one hand, there's a lot of leasing going on. On the other hand, the office markets are soft. So let's take SL Green, for example. They've really built around the Grand Central submarket. So a one Vanderbilt, you know, their new skyscraper next to Grand Central, it's complete success. One Madison, they already have a significant amount of pre-leasing done, including IBM, uh, Franklin Templeton. On the flip side, if you're a generic office building or you're an office landlord out west, it's really tough. Right now, would I want to be a landlord in lower Manhattan or up at, let's say, 59th and Lex? Probably not. Would I be scared if I'm a, a landlord around Grand Central? I'm not worried at all. So it's really a bifurcated market. And what you're seeing is, and Boston Properties has spoken about this, where the top tier properties are leasing and continuing to grow share. The generic and more pedestrian assets, they're losing. And unfortunately, there are two ways in life to, to spend a lot of money or to lose money, I should say. One is to own a boat, really expensive. The other way is office buildings. They're, they require a lot of CapEx, and that's what these companies are talking about. But that's why 
the top tier assets are winning the day because they have the amenities, the proximity, right. and the fit out that the tenants want. Alexander, thanks so much for your time. We'll have to have you back. Alexander no Barb. Now we weren't censored. We just hit a button <laughs> right. too early. Steve just went Steve, crazy. Steve, what was your trade? <laughs> oh, sorry. So when you a couple of years ago, retail space was thought to be going out of business. And everyone feared that. Now the new fear is that office space is going to be going out of business. I don't think it's going to be going out of business, but the problem is work from home, as Alex pointed out. And that is not going away anytime soon. So you have a real problem with office space. Yeah, says the man who was working from home. Uh, Guy Adami, final trade. (laughs) Steve was channeling his inner Travis Kelsey. NOC, Melms. Steve. Alphabet against that 50-day. Use that as your barometer. Chairwoman. Yes. Uh, fun day on our new set. Uh, mine is Bank America. I think we have an interview tomorrow with Brian Moynihan yep. in the morning. Dan. I bought Lyft. I went dumpster diving. Oh. <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Meantime. A CNBC, CNBC special taking stock with Frank Holland starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.